WingGD, we are driven by providing our customers a smarter perspective on engine technology. The marine environment we work in is fast changing. Regulations are increasing, causing our customers' capital and operational expenditures to rise. We improve efficiency and reliability through our passion for engine solutions, driven by our people who understand the pressures of the marine sector today and tomorrow. I'm Nicolas Bornois of Capital Inc. and I would like to welcome you to the newest uh, uh, podcast in the series Riding the Waves of a Lifetime. This series gives us the opportunity to interact, to discuss with maritime industry leaders who share with us life and career experiences as well as their unique insight on the industry's direction, opportunities, challenges and risks. I would like to thank WingGD for sponsoring today's podcast. Uh, the innovative technology of WinGD is behind the propulsion systems of all types of uh, ocean-going vessels around the world. So thank you, GD, for sponsoring uh, today's podcast. We are particularly uh, privileged today to uh, have with us uh, Hing Chao. We can trace Hing's imprint and impact across many areas, international shipping, arts and culture, heritage, and education. King, a global businessman, a statesman, and a cultural leader. In the business sector, I'm not going to go through King's very long CV, but I would like to point out a few key uh, elements. So in the business sector, King is the executive chairman of Wakong Maritime Transport Holdings Limited, a Hong Kong-based, third-generation, family-owned global shipping company active in dry bulk tanker and gas sectors, managing a fleet of uh, 58 vessels. And actually, I think uh, we're having this discussion today just uh, before you're about to take delivery of your newest uh, VLCC. Indeed. So beyond uh, the business world, beyond the uh, Wakong, Hing uh, has been at the forefront of thought leadership for maritime development in the Greater Bay Area. He's the founder of the Greater Bay Area Maritime Forum, the deputy chairman of the China Subcommittee of the Hong Kong Ship Owners Association, and a trustee of the Hong Kong Maritime Museum. And I'm always grateful and thankful to Hing for his help and contribution when we put together this fantastic event that we put uh, uh, about uh, the uh, Hong Kong Maritime Week uh, last uh, December. So in the arts and culture, another major area of focus for him, he's widely known for his pioneering and wide ranging work on martial arts. He created the Hong Kong Martial Arts Living Archive, the largest martial arts archive in the world. And he's the founder of the International Martial Studies Conference. And since uh, founding the Hong Kong Cultural Fe uh, Festival in 2015, Hing has been driving innovation across many areas in Hong Kong involving martial arts, dance, music, and new media arts. And finally, another area that I find particularly intriguing and interesting uh, in Hing's activities is his work with the nomadic groups in Inner Mongolia, Northern China. The Organ Foundation that he founded uh, focuses on research and revival of endangered nomadic hunter-gathered uh, cultures in Inner Mongolia. So it will be very tough to cover all this in an hour, but we will dive in and do our best. So Hink, thank you for being with us. It's really a, a privilege to have you. So I will start with the first question. Obviously, you know, you are part of a very well-known, uh, significant uh, shipping family. You are uh, the chairman of a family-owned, as I mentioned, third-generation shipping company. So the question how you got into shipping should be straightforward and self-explanatory. But looking at your career, it hasn't exactly been that self-explanatory because you had quite a journey before you joined the family business. So take us through this journey and the major uh, milestones in that and how you came into the, uh, how, how that prepared you actually to be part of the family business and move it forward. Many thanks for your comprehensive introduction, Nick. 
my journey back into family business and back into shipping has indeed been a long circuitous one. I'll try to make my answer short. In a way, you know, I'm privileged to be born in a traditional, well-established um, shipping family in Hong Kong. It was almost as if it was my destiny from the day I was born to become a director, to serve the family business. And indeed, that's a path my father uh, planned for me and all the people around him, all his friends said to me, yes, you're the man. It's Wak Wong, you know, it's big business, global shipping. You have to get into it, get ready. And you know what? After university, my father made very good arrangement for me to uh, have internship with various companies all along um, the value chain in shipping from brokers in London, um, operators in Hong Kong and in uh, Belgium, ship owners in Europe, a classification society, um, also a course at Cambridge Institute of Transport, all of that's within the space of two to three years. So I would say by the early 2000s, I was ready in a way to get back into shipping. And yet I wasn't because I suppose it felt so natural that I will come back to shipping at a certain moment. I just felt that, you know, in my early 20s, I wanted to explore the world, which is what I did. So I went in a way, um, I don't know if it was intentional, but in a way I went as far away from shipping as was imaginable. And I basically went to the interior of China. In this case, I went to Inner Mongolia and Heilongjiang province where I ensconced myself working with the last nomadic hunter-gatherers of uh, China's far north. Really, they have more in common, if you could believe, with people from Siberia than what we typically think of uh, as Chinese. So I went very far away and it took me a long time to get back and it's been a journey. If I may ask you, why did you pick them to go and work with them as opposed to going to another place? What attracted you to them? The simplicity of life. Um, I always felt somehow when I was growing up that um, the material world we live in, um, all the luxury, um, all the complexity of a city, um, the wealth gap, even when I was in my teens, I somehow didn't grasp it. And I always found very attractive places and people in the Amazon, in the middle of Mongolia, somewhere in the forest of Siberia, where people just had a very simple life. And I was attracted to that. And I wanted to know how people made a living and how people can have culture, where their day-to-day -day material or personal survival was a challenge. And I learned so much in this journey, I have to say. And it was, in a way, the best preparation I could have for the challenge ahead as we, you know, forge forward in the 21st century. As the world where today we are confronted with an unprecedented ecological crisis. I have the feeling that when you combine this experience also with your involvement with martial arts, that must have created a unique uh, intellectual discipline that then you can apply into business. So I can see the relevance and before we continue our discussion, take us to the family legacy. I mean, your family has been one of the pillars of the Hong Kong maritime community. Next year, you're celebrating the 70th anniversary of the company. Uh, you're working on your father's biography. So take us a little bit through this amazing family legacy. If I may, perhaps I can just continue on my journey a little bit. Several years ago, um, I became a little bit more mature. <laughs> if I can put it that way. And um, I felt ready to come back to shipping. And the, one of the first tasks that my family assigned me is actually to research into my father's history, personal history, and the history of my grandfather and of the company. Um, maybe my family knew that I'm a bit of a, a historian and that um, the best way for me to come to grips with the family legacy is actually to study it and to speak to people who have known the family, done business with us, seen us grow and worked with us um, along this journey. And mine, it's been mind opening. I mean, the, the lesson I've learned 
and how I see my father and my grandfather passing the wisdom and the lessons from one generation to another. For example, um, as we all know, shipping is extremely cyclical and volatile um, industry. Um, crisis, they're never far from the corner, even when we are going through the booms. And sometimes when uh, capitalist uh, institutions come into the, uh, in the industry without the historical background, it's easy to get burned. It's easy to get a little bit too greedy. And one of the core lessons that my father has imparted, not only to me, but to indeed to the Wagong senior management, is that we always leave something on the table. I look at the patterns, the relationship we've built. I mean, I have to be very honest with ourselves. Wagong, we're growing once again, for, but for a long time, and indeed today, we're not, in, we're not a big company in the order of things. We're well respected in the industry because we behave well and we, we treat our partners well. And people in this industry have very long memories. And we go back to the early 1970s, the late 1960s, when uh, Japan, the economy was starting to build um, in the post-war period, when the global shipping center was starting to shift, particularly in the shipbuilding from Europe, from places like UK, France, to Japan and they also needed a lot of capital to build the ships, so they came to Hong Kong. And a lot of these relationships are still strong, maintained strong with Wakong. So we realize that, you know, sometimes you do business for a few years, and then there'll be decades where you don't do business together. But the opportunities will come again, and we find ourselves again as business partners. So a lot of this is very important for us. And this is where I think a traditional family really are custodians of history, you know, of these memories and of these family values, in the values which are important, I say, in an industry like us in shipping. Wow, I have to say, I, I love your, uh, your wording that you are custodians of history, because at the end of the day, exactly when you have such a family legacy, you are a custodian of history. So that is so true. But now, Share with us moving forward, you joined the family business, you became the executive chairman. I'm sure you have faced a number of challenges. So if you can share us which were the major ones and how you overcame them. And I can assume that uh, steering the company to navigate safely during the pandemic, while at the same time maintaining the rapid pace of your expansion, because we have grown a lot in the, couple, in the last couple of years, I presume that must have been on the top of the challenges we faced. Yes, indeed. Well, you know, um, I was coming back into shipping uh, in the middle or towards the end of a prolonged uh, dry bulk slum, if I could put it that way. And, you know, um, one of the things that we constantly ask ourselves is how do you create value when you see the company physically shrinking? when you see that the new players coming into the industry, the likes of the financial uh, institutions, um, the leasing companies, so to speak, from mainland China, they outmuscle us, outweigh us by their sheer mass, by their access to capital, by the fact that they have uh, access to capital, not only in terms of scale, but in terms of cost, which as a traditional ship owner, you find it very hard to compete with. Um, we can compete with them or we try in terms of knowledge, try to time the shipping cycles a little bit better, but it's not easy. So from a very early moment in time, as I was getting back into shipping, I realized we have to diversify. We have to reinvent ourselves and we have to readapt. Rather than look at the likes of uh, the Chinese financial leasing companies as our biggest threat and competitors, we identify them as partners. And indeed, as partners, we have work very well together. Um, the growth that Wakong has been through over the last three years, particularly in what we call the integrated asset management, it's done together with very much every step of the way with the support and with understanding of the full partnership of the Chinese financial leasing companies. So I would say the biggest challenge has been, but also the biggest joy has been to reinvent the company. And I would say we're still in a very early part of this journey. Um, for nearly 50 years, Wang Dong has been almost exclusively 
an asset player, a punch supplier. And a few years ago, we decided it's not enough. We need to diversify. We have to get value out of a lot of the things that we do well, but which in the past have simply been cost centers, not profit centers. Time to shift that, time to change that. So that's what we have been doing. Very interesting that you took the integrated asset management approach. That is quite, uh, quite unique and quite interesting. And actually that's what shipping is all about to, to some extent. But let me ask you, Wacom is uh, a company of significant size with 58 vessels. You are a significant size. You have a global footprint. You are uh, present in a lot of, in, in three main areas, dry bulk, tankers and gas. But still, uh, you are a private company, a family uh, owned company. So what are the complexities and advantages of working or managing a family uh, owned uh, company? And especially a company with such a global presence as yours. First of all, relationships are very important. One of the things that really moved me um, is that people in shipping, yourself included, I'm sure, have very long-term relationships and very long memories. And people are, tend to be loyal. Those who stay in business tend to be very loyal. And I'm just impressed by how well people remember my father and how well people have tended to extend their regard for my father, to myself, and to Wakong as a whole. So that is a natural advantage that uh, a family business like us that is passed down within the same family, that people just transfer a lot of their allegiances, their feelings, their loyalties, and their relationships from one person to another down the generations. So that's certainly a core advantage. Um, disadvantage, I wouldn't call that a disadvantage, but in the family business, particularly, you know, um, for a family business that's well established, not only in terms of our reputation, but in terms of our, how people position us in the market. It's taken us a while for people to come to groups that Wakong today is a little bit different from Wakong five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and that our followed value proposition and that potential partnership with Wakong um, maybe could mean something a little bit more diverse and multi-layered compared to, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, where I wouldn't say we're one dimensional, but certainly we are easier to sort of pigeonhole in a way. And that applies to our partners and people who know us, but equally it applies to the team. So for the team to come to grips with new ideas, to embrace them and to march forward, uh, it, it, it goes back to um, corporate culture. Uh, it goes back to um, restructuring how we, we how we go about and do things, you know. Very interesting. So, staying in the same topic, more or less, uh, Wall Street has been an adv advocate of uh, listed companies focusing on one sector only, being pure plays on one uh, shipping market. Recently, we have seen a deviation from that uh, norm with companies diversifying into related uh, sectors. I have spoken to a number of private companies and they all uh, talk very favorably about the virtues of uh, being a diversified uh, company present in many areas. And you yourself have, have put in your um, annual report exactly the virtues of being present in more than one sector. So, and you have actually led that diversification as we mentioned into different sectors. So take us, if you don't mind, through the advantages of being present in more than one sector and what it means for, for the company in its future. Nick, I think this is the fourth dialectic in a way, because I do see advantages of consolidation and focus, as well as diversity. They serve very much different purposes. I think if one were to build presence, um, and particularly in operation, um, it's important to focus. And if you want to list, and if you want people to understand what the company is about, to have a very clear pattern of growth uh, where people can sort of position you within the market and understand where the market is, where the company is going in relation to that. Having focus and consolidation certainly helps. And in that regard, you know, while we're also consolidating, 
contemplating our tonnage in a certain way. I, I would say we were previously a little over-diversified. I cannot praise the virtue of diversification enough, but it's necessary to have one each or you know two to three ships each from handy size, handy max, super max, ultra max, panamax, cancer all the way up to a cape size. I would say you can probably spread your bed quite well without having that amount of difficult diversification, but it makes life a little bit easier for you to operate as a manager. So that's what we're doing within Wapong, that we will maintain our presence in dry bulk, in tankers, in oil, and in gas. But within these three main sectors, we will consolidate. So that's how we are moving forward. And in terms of consolidation, um, where Wapong is starting to build up scale and where we want to continue to build scale is in the supra to ultra sector. Um, I would say for a very long time, Wapong has not had commercial control of something like to what we're building up um, between 15 to 20 ships. Um, and that's an area that we intend to concentrate, uh, maybe with a view of uh, having more of a presence in the market in terms of operation as well. So I do see the US in conflict. Yeah. So moving now to another very important topic, the topic of company culture. Yes. You mentioned uh, that looking at the family legacy, you're a custodian of history. Uh, but of course, company culture always comes down from the CEO uh, and because you're managing or the executive chairman, you're managing the company. And I see in your corporate literature that you mentioned your company's values built on trust, steered by innovation, driven by passion, which I find the combination very interesting. So tell us how important is company culture for an organization like yours and how do you ensure as the executive chairman that this really spreads throughout the company? I think corporate culture is extremely important, particularly at a company as we are is in the middle of growth because as you're hiring people, if the core message, the core value of the company is not clear, then people will go in different directions. Um, one of the greatest value propositions of Wacom is that people think we are a company that people can trust. So loyalty and trust, it's absolutely critical. And we value that above everything else. And I think, you know, we like to think of Wacom as a company that offers good value. So this also transferred to how we manage and operate our ships as a ship manager, as an asset manager. We're not necessarily the cheapest, but we like to think that we compete at the highest level in terms of quality. And this is absolutely something we never compromise. I say to my managing directors, I say to my team, if at the cost of quality, we grow, then I'll rather we grow a little bit slower. Because once you lose control of that, then you know the company's core values could collapse very quickly. As important that uh, from the chairman down to the managing directors, senior management to every level down, this is well communicated. And this is where we have become a little bit more robust in terms of corporate communication. As you have seen, we have uh, revamped the website, we have uh, relaunched our internal magazines, but trust me, we also have very much revved up our uh, team building exercises to make sure that people know where we as a company are moving forward, where we can value. Well, indeed, you have done a lot of work in terms of revamping your overall communications. And within that framework, uh, you know, having gone through your materials, uh, and having interacted with you on many, and, and also with uh, William Fairclaw and Captain Zhu, uh, we're delighted to, to have had you privileged actually to many of our forums. And I know that you have put a lot of work and focus on sustainability. Uh, and uh, in your annual publication, Venture Forward, you, you really make a big case about your involvement with it. So take us a little bit through your approach to sustainability and what it means for for your company? Sustainability, it's the most important thing for humanity, I think. Um, I mentioned earlier that we are in the middle of a crisis, of an ecological crisis. And actually, that lesson, you ask 
very beginning of this interview about my journey. Actually, one of the core lessons I learned working with hunter-gatherers is that they never lost sight of the fact that human beings are part of a much greater ecosystem. We are simply one part of it. And it's the responsibility of everyone living within, for the case of hunter-gatherers, within the habitats or within the ecosystem to be responsible. So they would never kill an animal out of fun. They will not exhaust the resources existing within a specific habitat. That is a core lesson. And I also saw the imprint um, of, if you like, the cost of uh, China's rapid economic development uh, during the 1990s and early 2000s and the impact it had on the environment. And it's devastating. And some of the literature I read during that time, late 90s, early 2000s, it made very depressing literature indeed. Uh, a lot of the rivers uh, are polluted, a lot of cities, um, again, the water sources are polluted because of heavy industry. Of course, what China has done over the last 20 years to reverse that trend, it's completely mind-boggling because no one would have thought that China A will have to resolve the resources and see the sheer political will to make that happen. But I saw that with my own eyes. And so coming back to the industry, even before um, all the environmental regulations, I felt that humanity as a whole, we have to become more sustainable. And that has a very important impact on how I think about sustainability. Um, when I talk to all our corporate partners, and I want to emphasize that this is not lip service, I do take sustainability very seriously. And I do look at sustainability very broadly as well. Sustainability is not what IMO um, or, or, or EU or the regulators tell us sustainability is. We have to understand that global shipping, we are part of the global economic engine. We are part of the supply chain. If shipping, we cut down all our carbon footprint to zero, but no one else does it, is it sustainable? Absolutely not. So from day one, I think it's important to look at sustainability across this chain um, and engage our banks, our financial institutions, engage our charters, engage our shipyards to make sure that everyone's actually aligned and that we are all moving towards that goal. It's not the, a simple mission of uh, the shipping industry as a whole. And I think that's where maybe the global conversation um, in the shipping industry has been a little bit too narrow to my liking, particularly the uh, rather narrow focus on uh, the transitional fuel propulsion, because we have to remember, okay, great, we can have a hydrogen solution, we can have an ammonia solution, potentially we can have a nuclear solution, but how is that being produced? Is that sustainable, right? If we change ownership today from... Um, from traditional using burning fossil fuel to a transitional solution, which will then be phased out halfway through its life cycle. We create a lot more energy that way. We burn a lot more carbon that way. Is that conversation being had enough time? You know, I, I just don't think that the conversation we've been having a lot of times on uh, uh, on maritime platforms is broad enough to really take into account the issues we're dealing with. And I think there are also other mechanisms which will help the world as a whole to make that transition into a more sustainable world. For example, through carbon offset. Um, I'm not saying that we don't look into future solutions. Of course we do. But at the same time, if we pump all our money into solutions which are half-baked, where the supply chain, where the distribution of new energy sources or even the production are not ready, are we, it's the industry, it's the world not better served if more companies are doing offset so that we are helping with um, the building of, let's say, the renewable and energy infrastructure, because that is the cheapest uh, form of carbon credit at this moment in time. So that in time, in 10 years time, in five years, 15 years, who knows, when we want to produce sustainable ammonia or hydrogen, the power sources are there, the renewables are there. Right now we're not. 
I think we are not going necessarily in um, as comprehensive a manner as we can be. So I know that you have, uh, I mean, I've read that you have been active in uh, carbon credits and carbon offsets. So if I understand correctly, you use them as an interim, let's say motivational mechanism until we find uh, you know, uh, a permanent solution uh, to the industry. The two go hand in hand. I, I, I don't see it as a question of either or. I think carbon neutral, when, when people are having a discussion about carbon neutral in other industries, for example, in real estate, you are measured on a net value and not on an absolute value, because I think that is absolutely impossible in the state that we are in today right now. A lot of things need to change before we can achieve that. And for shipping to be alone in trying to uh, achieve this absolute zero, I think is silly and it's counterintuitive and it's counterlogical. Um, so if we talk about the, the balancing mechanism, um, as I said, on the one hand, um, by buying carbon credits, we are facilitating the world as a whole to transition into a more sustainable world. But at the same time, um, I am absolutely for looking into better solutions when they're mature and when the market conditions, including um, the price of the ship, including the price of the, the bunkers of the new energy sources is reasonable or there is a, somehow an economic or financial balancing system that will compensate for the gap. And if the charters are ready to pay for that premium, these conditions need to be, to be in place for that to be ready. But welcome, we are ready to make that commitment when the other parties are. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but Clearly, decarbonization is one of the critical topics. We have seen the recent IMO decisions, a lot of discussion about it, a lot of uncertainty. Uh, so you are a man of vision. How do you think we can end with uh, a solution that can be long lasting uh, and applicable to everybody? Is, is there a path towards that? We have to understand that transition takes time and during this time there'll be overlapping solutions and there'll be overlapping paradigms um, i remember very well um, martin stockford's very uh, comprehensive presentation a few years ago in hong kong when travel was possible and he talked about their transition from sail to steam and at a certain moment at the beginning of steam engine the most well-designed sailing ships were actually more efficient than the first generation of steamships. Why should we phase out all the efficient sailing boats until we have something that is ready? When it's ready, the transition will happen quite naturally. So I, I, I think this similar sort of um, argument must hold for today. I am not saying that we push back the need for transition, the need for innovation, absolutely not. But at the same time, can we do everything at once? No. And I think certain sectors are maybe a little bit better positioned. For example, we see dual fuel, LNG fuel. Um, let's forget about the debate whether LNG is indeed sustainable or not. Let's forget about that. But if indeed LNG or dual fuel is a step forward, then we see that the line of business container ships have already made a significant commitment to, to this transition because for a number of factors, the fact that it's easier to uh, ensure um, supply of LNG bunkers in fixed lines rather than let's say in smaller dry bunk areas, that is self-evident. Um, the fact that they are more visible in a way and they also their operators within the line of business they tend to be listed companies though so they also have more significant uh, pressure um, from the market and from investors these are all factors that have contributed to certain uh sectors being a little bit more forward um, in terms of transition also if we compare the big ships to the smaller ships uh the sheer economy of scale will render certain solution viable for some and not viable for the others. So for example, we know that um, the energetic 
efficiency of hydrogen is a lot less than fossil fuel. And for hydrogen to be applied to coastal ferries, to uh, yachts, boats, ships, which are relatively smaller and travel shorter distance, maybe it's more viable. Also, I've spoken to um, uh, manufacturers of um, uh, sales, um, and sales work very well on certain routes, but not on others. So we have to take all of these into consideration. It's a very complex situation. And I do not anticipate that we will have a single answer. Of course we won't. King, you mentioned the value and importance of cooperation. Do you think that there is enough cooperation right now in the industry to debate and formulate uh, these issues and formulate the strategy? And also, there's another uh, argument that I hear that the industry, the shipping industry, seems to be reactive rather than proactive in terms of putting out its position and, and trying to find a solution. What do you think? I fully agree with uh, both points. I think, first of all, um, there is scope for more discussion, more debate, but I think these discussion and debate should lead to tangible outcomes. And I see the Global Maritime Forum as having made a very significant contribution several years ago. However, it's unfortunate that not a lot of Asian uh, shipping companies have been involved in this process. And I think Asia as a whole have been conspicuous by their reticence. And I think, you know, we are the part of the world where most of ships, 89% of the ships are being built, where China is the major destination for a lot of global commodities, uh, for steel, certainly, for coal, for oil, occupy a slightly different position geographically, uh, economically, um, as well as uh, across the spectrum of other considerations from Europe and from Americas, we will have a different view. I think the longer term vision, everyone's aligned. We have to be more green. We have to become more environmentally responsible. But how to do it? What's the roadmap? I think potentially there is the greater outcome is similar. It's the same, but there can be competing or different pathways that lead to the same goal. And I would like to see that being panned out more in the future. And I think, you know, forums similar to Global Maritime Forum, I would really encourage them to do more, particularly um, Asian Ship Owners Forum, which I remember very well being founded in the 1990s when my father and the likes of uh, my good family friend, Mr. C.C. Tung, was, were respectively the chairmen of Hong Kong Ship Owners Association. And we are having a very close discussion with all our friends in Asia that Asia was starting to become more important and it's important for Asian countries to speak to one another. And unfortunately, um, I personally have been a little bit disappointed by uh, the development or the lack of uh, this type of discussion at the pan-Asian level. Very interesting, very interesting. And you also have the major industry associations that are really working very much on that, Intertanko, Intercargo, the ICS. I mean, you really have the industry with its institutional presence. But it's very interesting the point that you brought up on the Asian presence, because Asia is obviously a huge component of the industry. And maybe, as you said, uh, having a bigger presence in these forms would be a, a very good idea. I think it's essential. So before we move uh, to the, the, the next part of our discussion, I have one more question regarding industry and transformation. Tell us about technology. Clearly, technology is transforming the industry widely. Where do you see, um, what do you anticipate to be the biggest technological uh, changes going ahead and, and the impact on the industry? Well, Nick, I don't know about you, but sitting where I am, I do not have a crystal ball in front of me. <laughs> and, and technology is by its nature, is unpredictable. It's uh, disruptive and it's hard to anticipate what's going to come. Um, but I think if anything, the pandemic has shown us that there are already a lot of uh, technical solutions out there, 
which will help us communicate with one another, will make the, more, the world more sustainable. And a lot of these solutions have been in place for a long time. The biggest obstacle in a way is here, that shipping remains quite a traditional industry. And sometimes we are reluctant to change our ways, but I think a paradigm shift is already happening. We see that there are tech accelerators being set up in Singapore, um, in China, in Shanghai, um, I'm sure in New York and London, and places like Copenhagen. And I expect a lot of bright ideas to come up with, not necessarily from the corporate giants, but maybe from medium size or e even smaller size startup companies. And I think the future is very exciting. Of course, the biggest technological challenge um, for us today remains technology that will help the industry to reform itself or revolutionize in terms of sustainability, in terms of how to meet the targets that IMO and indeed many other regulators are now talking about accelerating um, the environmental decarbonization um, emission targets. So I think, you know, that's in itself a huge technological challenge. But indeed, there are many other ways. So we discussed a lot of, about business. Let me now go to a different direction and ask you uh, about your involvement with martial arts. As I mentioned in my opening remarks, I mean, you've done a lot of work on that. Uh, you created the Hong Kong Martial Arts Living Archive. You are the founder of the International Martial uh, Studies Conference, and you founded the Hong Kong Cultural Festival. So tell us about your involvement with martial arts and your passion and love about it. Martial arts for me is a bit like shipping. It's a, it's a lifelong commitment. It's a lifestyle. It's about my values. It's about how I live. And it's also about a legacy. Um, for me, my involvement with martial arts is very deep. Um, it's building a system. It's about rebuilding a culture. So my involvement with martial arts is much more than my personal practice. But the fact that I see martial arts as once upon a time being a very integral, and I'm, when I say martial arts, I'm speaking um, quite specifically um, of Chinese martial arts. Of course, I appreciate that all countries, including Greece, for example, had a fantastic uh, martial arts legacy and heritage. But in terms of uh, the development in China, um, 100 years ago, um, people tried to reform martial arts in a way that we will preserve the core values, the traditions, um, the legacy that have been passed down from the past, but also to take martial arts forward in a way that it's modern, it's scientific, it's competitive, it's something that is uh, compatible and commensurable with how we envisage the human body and how, you know, um, uh, with the pace of social and cultural change in China. Unfortunately, for all sorts of reasons, historical reasons, that was not successful. And we see a massive um, rupture, um, a wedge between martial arts on the one hand as uh, a legacy that is still somehow not exactly ancient, but not exactly modern, and that is struggling to find its position, struggling to survive in the modern world with where China is moving and where Chinese society is moving. Um, and I think there is a mutual need for the two to reconnect. And I see that as a very important part of what I do. Thank you. Fascinating, I would say. Um, so, sorry for being a little bit vague, but if I were to go into details, this will be another hour at least. You know, what I, what I, what I take from this, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, I, you know, uh, to me, it indicates that, again, you have a spiritual and intellectual discipline that you can directly apply into business and into life. And uh, obviously, you gain this uh, discipline and insight through martial arts in a very unique way. So you're right. I think you have the values, we have discipline. So it is kind of unique. Uh, and thank you for sharing this with us. So now I also remember that you're working on an archive on Hong Kong's history. 
It's an idea that I proposed to the industry a number of years ago. Um, I was triggered to do this by several themes. Um, first of all, with my work with ethnic minorities, particularly uh, the nomadic hunters in Northern China. Now, these hunters, they have an ancient culture um, that's embedded in the way of life, the hunter-gatherer way of life. Um, much of that wisdom, much of that knowledge system was orally passed down, has been orally passed down from one person to another, from one generation to another. So that's how that tradition, culture, the totality of it is being maintained. There comes a point in time when people no longer hunted and that language was no longer spoken. So the entire value system, the entire, all the stories that go back many centuries were are on the verge of disappearing so i started to collect the oral history and i had the support of uh, a couple of universities a few universities both from china uh hong kong as well as from the overseas and i actually trained up a, a whole group or groups of university students to do this and i realized the amount of work you can the value of oral history sometimes as simple as a single account that just shows you a way of life. It's like a vignette or a tableau of something that is out of imagination, beyond imagination. And the same applies to our industry. For example, um, my father, he was the chairman of the Hong Kong Ship Owner Association between 1995 and 1997. Uh, for those of us, who are familiar with uh, that part of history, particularly in the Far East, China and Taiwan, they were going through a diplomatic crisis. So the two were not talking to one another. However, Hong Kong was a very important transshipment hub between China and Taiwan. So some, something as simple as what happens to a Taiwanese ship if they want to sail into Hong Kong, if Taiwanese flag was not recognized, it's a huge problem. And the governments were relatively slow in recognizing it. China and Taiwan would not talk to one another, but the people who went through this are still, most of them are still alive today. So I had the privilege as part of uh, putting together my father's biography to actually interview the people who were involved firsthand in the process. Imagine all the private discussions that were being had beyond the tabloid headlines. How valuable is that? And we're talking about a handful of individuals who resolve an international problem. Amazing. And there's so many things like this in international shipping. And that is a general problem I think we find in our industry is that we are an industry that is ancient, that is filled with colorful personalities, full of stories. And everything that happens in the maritime industry is related to micro as well as macroeconomics. It's related to what's happening around us. And it's the thing that keeps the world going. And yet our stories are not being told. Hong Kong is just an example. And these stories need to be collected. And yet they're not. So I am quite disappointed that so little work has been done. But you are trying to fill the gap now. And uh, as I can see from our discussion, you are a custodian of history, not only for the family legacy, but on the broader scene for the industry. And that is uh, really highly commendable. And, uh, well, there are many other shipping companies who are a lot more advanced than us. Swire Shipping, for example, and there are many others. I'm, I'm sure Maersk has a very impressive archive somewhere. So we have a lot to learn. And it's not simply the responsibility of of a company. I mean, we will do what we can, but it's important for maritime cities like Hong Kong, London, Tokyo, Singapore, Shanghai, Hong Kong to really do their part. And it's it's something, it's, it should be in the awareness of uh, the politician and the civil servants at, at a high level. It's not simply a maritime thing. Absolutely. Well, let's move now to the last part of our discussion, last but not least. Please share with us your vision for Hong Kong and Asia. Hong Kong has gone through significant change 
Uh, how do you see, looking ahead, the role of Hong Kong? You have been very vocal that Hong Kong can play a double role, be the super connector with China, and also has a very robust standalone position in the industry as a major global maritime hub. Uh, so tell us how you see Hong Kong evolving in, in its position in the industry going ahead. Oh, well, again, from a historical point of view, from the very beginning, um, Hong Kong was a very important coastal defense place for China, going back to the Tang Dynasty over 1500 years ago. Um, Hong Kong City, we like to sell ourselves as uh, a Cinderella story from a fishing village to uh, a major global financial center. That is not true. From the very beginning, Hong Kong mattered on the maritime front. Hong Kong was also once, um, to lighten the conversation a little bit, the, a, an important place for pirates. So I think from a maritime perspective, Hong Kong has also always mattered. It's just that to what degree China was actually open, right? And in periods when China is open, Hong Kong, we maximize our value proposition by being a proper bridge because of our geographical position, if nothing else, but also the fact that under one country, two systems, we do have a lot of advantages in the systems we have in place. Financial system. We have one of the most mature global financial centers. Um, legal system, which is well recognized. It's uh, based on UK law and Hong Kong last year, as is well known to everyone in the industry, um, is included in BIMCO standard arbitration clause as a jurisdiction for maritime arbitration. So I think these are fundamental strengths of Hong Kong, and I do not see them disappearing. If, if China were to continue on its path to, of e economic development, particularly as the national government has seaborne trade and maritime development as one of the most important um, economic drives and policies for the country. I think Hong Kong will continue to be very important. And the fact that Hong Kong is being positioned as the leader for international trade, shipping and finance within the Greater Bay Area, um, to put it in China's today political jargon, we are at the very center of the dual circulation the economic circulation within China and the circulation between China and the world. Hong Kong, we are at the center of that. Very interesting. By the way, I'd like to, uh, uh, to thank you again, uh, Hing, for your help uh, with uh, our um, Hong Kong Maritime Forum event. <clears throat> and uh, the, uh, the great presentation that you helped uh, put together, I mean, uh, Tim Huxley was the one who actually put the whole thing together on uh, the history of Hong Kong uh, post-war. And that was fascinating. And uh, I urge everybody to go back and, uh, and, and look at it because it was so well documented. Um, so I think it really can show us a lot of the history and the, and the uh, development. And clearly what you're doing now with the Greater Bay Area gives it a different dimension obviously, and a different uh, longevity looking for the future. But last question to ask you, uh, Shanghai made it to the top three um, global uh, maritime hubs, uh, I think last year. Do you see Hong Kong being a complement, being in competition to uh, other maritime hubs like uh, Singapore or Shanghai? Um, clearly Hong Kong has a unique uh, legacy so how do you see it? Do you see it complementary? Do you see it in competition? How has it going to, to evolve? I think there's certainly a, an element of uh, being complementary and there's an element of competition. And I think the two can coexist and it's healthy to coexist because it's competition that drives excellence and innovation. Um, I think between Hong Kong and Shanghai, our mutual strengths um, complement each other in a more natural and synergistic way. If Shanghai is the most important maritime center inside China itself, then Hong Kong, we are the most important international maritime center surfacing China. So the two go hand in hand, as, as I said um, earlier in the conversation, 
we can take certain examples. For example, um, maritime law and maritime legal services. Uh, China is now becoming more and more involved. Um, as China becomes more involved in global shipping, of course, more Chinese stakeholders will be involved in arbitration. It stands to reason. And if you ask the Greek counterparties, British counterparties to go to Shanghai, they will probably be a little bit afraid. But if they come to Hong Kong as a compromise, where both sets of um, stakeholders may feel comfortable, that's where Hong Kong can add value. But of course, Shanghai, shipping being such a universal industry for the world, such a global industry, if through the platform Hong Kong, we can engage the legal industry, the legal profession a little bit better so that Hong Kong standard and Chinese standard become closer aligned. This also brings China closer to the rest of the world. This is simply one example, in my view. Um, with Singapore, it's a little bit more different because I think the value proposition of Hong Kong and Singapore overlap a little bit more. But of course, the characteristics of Hong Kong and Singapore are almost diametrical opposites of, to one another. Hong Kong is very much driven by a free economy. We have a strong industry, a very innovative um, industry. We, ha we are one of the freest places, despite what some people think in the world, particularly in respect of civic liberty. Uh, Singapore, um, they are a little bit different. They are top-down, very strong um, government with a huge support, a very visionary government for how to cement and strengthen Singapore's position as a maritime hub, where Hong Kong, we are the industry who submit ideas and push the government to move forward. So in a way, you know, it's two completely different systems, but having Hong Kong and Singapore compete with one another can only create a better shipping environment for the rest of the world and for Asia. So I see that as only healthy. You are absolutely right. And I think at the end of the day, uh wealth meant competition is always uh, positive. Uh, I'm uh, grateful that the Capital Link has the opportunity to work uh, very closely in Singapore, Shanghai, and of course, Hong Kong. And I really like very much your argument, uh, especially about the complementarity between Shanghai and, and Hong Kong, because that creates a more holistic approach. Uh, so that, that is a great, uh, a great statement. Um, now, we are at the end of our conversation. We had a very long and tremendously insightful, obviously, discussion. I wanted to ask you, if you look back, I mean, would you do things differently? Looking back at yourself and how you came in the business, what you've done, any advice you would give to yourself uh, in terms of? Well, speaking logically, I think I could have accelerated my career a little bit, don't you think? <laughs> but, you know, uh, I think things take time. And because I have spent a lot of time working with ecological people, people who live in sync with the environment, with habitat, I believe in growth. And I think, you know, um, Earlier in my career, I needed to go through the things that I've been through to bring me to where I am today. And indeed, one of the things that sort of encouraged me to explore the broader world outside of Wakong, Hong Kong and the shipping industry is because I didn't feel ready. I didn't feel I had anything significant to contribute. Whereas coming back today, I feel a little bit more confident. King, thank you very much. Um for this uh, tremendous discussion. Uh, we are coming to the end of our conversation. I would also uh, like to thank WinGD one more time for sponsoring today's podcast. And, and these podcasts really give us, give us the opportunity to go beyond the beaten path of uh, to talk just about business. Uh, I mean, it is really wonderful to see the human aspect of everybody, their, their career and life experiences and how these uh, translate into their industry presence. So thank you for being so forthcoming and so insightful. Uh, it's been tremendous uh, knowing you and uh, cooperating with you. And thank you very, very much. It's always a pleasure. Nick. I very much enjoy the conversation as well. Thank you. Thank you.